You're listening to Biceps After Babies Radio, episode 252. Hello, and welcome to Biceps After Babies Radio, a podcast for ladies who know that fitness is about so much more than pounds lost or PRs. It's about feeling confident in your skin and empowered in your life. I'm your host, Amber Brzezicki, a registered nurse, personal trainer, wife, and mom of four. Each week, my guests and I will excite and motivate you to take action in your own personal fitness as we talk about nutrition, exercise, mindset, personal development, and executing life with conscious intention. If your goal is to look, feel, and be strong and experience transformation from the inside out, you, my friend, are in the right place. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's jump into today's episode. Hey, 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 welcome back to another episode of Biceps After Babies Radio. I'm your host, Amber Brzezicki, and today on the podcast, we have Emily Fields, who is a registered dietitian, and we have a fantastic conversation about macro counting, how she's integrated that into her diet dietetics, um, from her dietetics training into her practicing as a dietitian. We talk about diet culture, which I feel like is such a buzzword today. And where does macro counting fit in terms of diet culture? We talk about insulin and blood glucose, which I also feel like are hot topics. And I make the point in the episode that I feel like people understand enough about those two topics to be dangerous, but not enough to really understand them. So Emily does a fantastic job of breaking that down. And then we end with the big question that a lot of people have, the transition from macro counting to letting go of tracking. What does that process look like and how do we be more successful in it? And the suggestion that Emily has was something that I never thought about and is such a good thing for those of you who are currently tracking to be aware of because there are practices and habits and things you can be looking at right now while you're tracking that are going to help you in the future to be able to let go of of tracking um, and fantastic recommendations that she has at the end of the episode. So make sure you stay till the end. And if you like this episode, go ahead and leave a quick rating and review on the platform you're listening on. That really helps the podcast to be able to be shown to more people. And as always, share this podcast episode with anybody that you feel like would benefit from this. If you like the content, the best thing that you can do to say thank you to the content creator is to share it. So I'm really appreciative when you guys share the podcast episodes. Without further ado, let's jump into that interview with Emily Fields. All right. I am so excited to have Emily Field here today with me on the podcast. Emily, how are you doing? Thanks for being here. I'm really excited about thanks our conversation. So yes. Thanks so much, Amber. I'm happy to be here. So let's start with a little introduction for anybody who's listening, who may not know anything about you. Just kind of give us a little bit of background on you, um, who you are, what your qualifications are, and specifically who you serve and, and what you do. Yeah. Well, like you said, my name is Emily Field. I am a registered dietitian and I would call myself at this point a macros expert. I own a completely online coaching practice, much like you do. And I'm usually helping women learn how to eat to get strong, be fit and feel lean. So a lot of times people are coming to me saying, I just want to look like I work out. I'm putting on putting in so much work in the gym, but I just don't look like the part. And so usually that means that I'm teaching them how to eat more. Um, but I'm also working on their mindset and probably their metabolism at the same time throughout all of my offerings throughout all of my services, because that's what ultimately makes people extremely successful. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm curious, did you ever work in a, like a hospital setting or a clinic setting before going online or did you go straight to an online practice? 
No, I actually worked my, one of my very first jobs was at the women, infant and children programs. It's very common for dietetics grads and newbie dietitians to go into a community nutrition. So that would be the WIC program. And I ran a clinic in St. Louis, Missouri. So that was an extremely eye-opening experience for me on a lot of different levels. And, uh, from coming from like a, a, um, uh, I would say middle-class background, uh, growing up very middle-class and then working with uh, pretty poor people. And it was, it was just great for me to be kind of immersed in that and just have a shakeup on my understanding of the world and how nutrition uh, helps and serves that population. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I, I worked a lot with dietetics majors. I was a nursing major. And so a lot of our prereqs for the dietetics majors were the, were the same. So I did a mm-hmm. lot of classes with dietetics na- majors. Um, and, and then, you know, when we got into our programs, we kind of split off. So, um, I always, I always loved like working with the dietetics majors, but during dietetics training, did you also have on like hands-on training in the clinics in like the community to be able to make that transition out. I'm just a little curious about dietetic training. Yeah, absolutely. So to become a dietitian, uh, we go through our four years of school. We graduate from a a dietetic program at usually a four-year undergrad college. You're not done there though. You have to go into an unpaid, usually unpaid internship. And a lot of times that's paired with maybe a master's degree, but a lot of times it's not. And that is a uh, 1,200 hours of supervised training in the field. So you're rotating between community sites, clinical sites. Um, so I was luckily, lucky enough to be able to pick some hands-on like farm sites and schools and oh, cool. wellness centers and things like that. So there is a little bit of flexibility where you can go, but ultimately every dietetic intern is kind of completing hours at all these different sites to kind of get a taste of where we could all work. I think it's kind of like a job try on, but it's also to like, it's also to train us. And I learned through that process that I was like, I don't know what I like. I was like, I, I was, I didn't feel at home at any one of those sites. And it was a really tough time for me uh, in my early twenties. Like, did I pick the right major? I was like, did I pick the right profession? I had loved everything up until that point. And then as soon as I got in the real world and I saw how it was applied, I was having a really tough time. So I ex- like, like what many people do, uh, just go to school, just continue to go to school and figure it yeah. out later. So <laughs> if you I can't figure it out, just kick yeah. that can down the road and go to more school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, actually graduated with a master's degree in public health, which really rounded out my understanding of nutrition and how it fit into the spoke of the wheel in an entire community of health or an entire, like, yeah, how it, how it fits for the community and how well-rounded an individual could be and what health actually means. It's not just limited to nutrition. So, uh, that did buy me some time. I did land that WIC job. And then eventually I found myself at a, uh, online based like wellness coaching company where I did telephonic health coaching over the phone. That's awesome. So mm-hmm. what, what made you in the first place want to pursue a dietetics career, uh, or a degree? I, I honestly didn't even know what dietetics was until I was in the pre-nursing track. And I was with all these mm-hmm. like dietetics, pre pre-dietetic students. I didn't even know what a dietitian was up until that point. So I'm curious, like, how did you find out what that was, what led you into pursuing that degree? Well, it's, well, same, same with me. I, I mean, I was, I remember working right alongside my nursing friends. So it is true. Like we are very overlapped in a lot of the classes in under, undergrad and we were like sharing notes and things like that on the cool things you were doing and the cool things that we were doing. So I do have fond memories of that in college, 
but it wasn't like, I didn't know what a dietitian was either. I had a few experiences in high school where I saw a dietitian because my mom didn't know what to do with me. She was always like very uh, skinny and, and food never was a problem with her for her. And so uh, she didn't understand why uh, my thyroid was failing and why I was gaining weight. And so I did have an early experience with a dietitian, but it was really very, very brief. And I wasn't really moved by that experience. But I knew at some point, like in entering college, I was like, I want to be in a field where I I help people help themselves. So that really like a narrowed down kind of an adjacent medical field, like psychology or physical therapy, and then also nutrition. And honestly, I feel like it was just like right place, right time for me. I selected nutrition as my major and you know how they just like try to push you on a four year track and get you in those classes right away. And nutrition is packed. Dietetics is a packed degree. So you need to be working on that as soon as you're in college. And so that's what happened to me. I I landed in those early nutrition classes and fell in love. And it was kind of like, that was it from that, that point on. So I was very lucky in that respect. I'm really curious about the training that you received. So this question comes from the, you know, the fact that you have, you are an RD, um, and you use macro counting and you help have that with your clients. I've talked to many RDs that feel like they didn't really understand or learn the in-depths of, you know, they learned what macronutrients are, but taking that the step to like macro tracking or like using that as a tool, they didn't feel as confident or comfortable. And maybe that's program by program. And maybe that's year by year, you know, Mm -hmm. things change whether you went through your RD in the eighties, nineties, two thousands, right. Um, so I'm curious in your program, how was that presented and how did, how did you start bringing that, you know, macro counting as a tool into your own practice as a dietitian? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll first say that my main pushback to an argument like that to people, to even dietitians who say we didn't learn this in school is that's not really the point. <laughs> that wasn't really the point in undergrad was to teach you all the, all the approaches that we could use with clients. And I would argue that I didn't yeah. necessarily learn the ins and outs of intuitive eating. I didn't learn the ins and outs. The best thing that I probably learned out of school was uh, a really great foundation on motivational interviewing, which is simply coaching, which is really the basics of coaching, um, as an, as a methodology. So I, I wouldn't say that that was, that's what we were meant to do. And so that was, that's my pushback there is like, they're supposed to teach us how to think and how to Mm -hmm. be critical thinkers and maybe better decision makers and make, uh, but it really comes with practice and you developing your practice, which is literally what it's called uh, over time, uh, comes with worth working with clients. So yes, to be fair, I did not learn how to macro count or coach, uh, in the very real sense that I use it right now in school. But I, what I did learn is, uh, I had a really awesome experience at my college with biochemistry and that is nutritional biochemistry, which is essentially how nutrients are turned into, uh, like energy in our body. So the very complex relationship of metabolism, my teacher was very, my professor was extremely ahead of her time. She knew how to teach it well. And most, most people would say they hated that class. I loved it. (laughs) So no, I, I loved it. And, um, I think that really just formed the foundation of, I I'm a why person. I'm like, I want to know how things work. So her teaching and my receiving of that information, I think probably set the things in motion that I was going to kind of go this route with a more technical uh, approach to nutrition with clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one, one of the things that, you know, I've heard you talk about too, is that one of the beautiful parts of, of dietetics and having dietitians is that there are lots of different ways to apply that knowledge, right? So you learn mm-hmm. the, the basics, the foundations in school, and then there are dietitians who are haze 
you know, dietitians, there are dietitians who are intuitive eating. There are dietitians who like use a lot of these different tools to be able to serve people and serve clients in different niches. Um, and, and that's a beautiful part of it. And so you've kind of carved out utilizing macro counting in, into your practice. And what does that specifically look like for you when you're helping your clients? Well, I would say that the basics of what I try to coach people on is forming a foundation of having well-rounded meals, because we know that if we have some protein, some fat, and some carbohydrate at every meal, we're going to have very balanced and stable blood sugar, which for most of my clients solves a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. So if we could just ignore numbers for a hot second and just get people eating more whole real food in macro balance, we're going to solve a lot of problems. But the very next logical question uh, comes to them, which is, well, how much protein, how much fat and how much carbs sure. do I need? So yeah. it ends up being a very natural conversation to teach them what a sizable appropriate portion of protein might look like, or sizable appropriate portion of carb might look like for their active lifestyle, things like that. And then all of a sudden you're on a fast track to setting targets for the whole day and teaching mm -hmm. people how to meal plan and prepare for that. So I think it was very natural for me to go that route, especially with the foundation of balanced blood sugar and PFC eating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, with blood sugar, cause this is a, a kind of a hot topic and things that I think people know just enough about to be dangerous, but not enough about to like actually understand the concept. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, blood sugar, maybe getting a little into the science, but just like a general understanding of when, when we talk about blood sugar, why does that matter? And why would managing or like stabilizing blood sugar be something that solves problems? Like what are those problems that you're seeing in your clients that then diminish when you start to stabilize someone's blood sugar? Well, I guess I'll just say that, uh, so blood sugar balance or the manipulation of your blood sugar, uh, turns on and turns off several other hormones downstream. So we actually have an opportunity every single time we eat to turn on and turn off certain hormones, starting with our master hormone insulin. So when we eat carbohydrate, our body will take in those carbohydrates and digest it down and we will absorb it. And those, uh, carbohydrates become glucose. And so you've heard the term blood glucose also termed blood sugar. It will rise in the blood. So that's the act, uh, just, just the way our body is, um, getting that fuel into the blood and all of our cells are using it. So this is what we need to live. This is what we need <laughs> for energy. And it takes insulin. Our insulin comes to act. Our anabolic hormone insulin comes and pulls that glucose into the cells. And that's a, a well-working system. Your insulin will come grab that uh, glucose, put it into the cells and clear it out of the blood in a well-working system. Unfortunately, we can have some disease processes that will make it harder for insulin to do its job. And so that glucose or that sugar stays in the blood and stays pretty high in the blood for a long period of time. Um, we can also have, yeah, I guess I'll just leave it like that. And so when we have our blood sugars tries to be tightly uh, maintained within a range, and that would what we be what we would call stable blood sugar. It's staying kind of between a buffer um, we'd say like 80 to like 120. And then when you have to, you eat meals, it would rise a little bit, but it would come back down to normal. And in, in a broken system or a system that has some problems, we would see that blood sugar fluctuate really, really high way above 120, 140, 160, something like that. And maybe even drop off very suddenly. We'd see, I like to compare it to uh, a picture of rolling Hills or a picture of of roller coaster. And so what we're looking for is a picture of, of rolling hills where our blood sugar is fairly stable. It's pretty mellow. It rises and falls with our meals. It's not very dramatic. And that 
you can imagine feels a lot different than riding a roller coaster all day long. So there are several things I teach about PFC eating that would make for um, better balanced blood sugar, but essentially it boils down to how much carb you're eating, what form those carbs are in, and whether or not those carbs are surrounded by or eaten with uh, fat and protein. So that's the foundation of the approaches by eating more whole real food carbs, um, uh, limiting that carbohydrate amount or figure out what is the sweet spot for you. And then always pairing those carbs with fats and proteins uh, for a better absorption, more rolling hills, blood sugar. So to answer your question very directly, if you don't have great blood sugar balance, you're going to experience low energy with those lows in blood sugar. You might experience cravings. I see women experience particularly anxiety or hangry with those lows. You might see poor uh, workout performance or poor recovery from workouts. You might have a very variable appetite throughout the day. Um, When we're in those lows, then we're reaching for foods like our our crunchy, snacky, high sugar, high carb foods because our body is smart and it's telling us to go grab that sugar that we need, that glucose that we need. And then you're on a high and then you're crashing again, same sort of feeling. Then you're on a high and then you're crashing again. So when we are able to mellow that all out, you can experience a lot better energy, a lot more well-managed cravings, maybe no cravings at all, Um, much better, like more predictable workout performance and recovery, stuff like that. Yeah. That's so good. And I appreciate you going through that whole process. I feel like, again, people, I feel like know enough about things to be dangerous. And I feel like many women have gotten the idea and heard from a lot of people that, you know, insulin is like bad insulin is, it gets this like demonizing effect of, well, insulin is just, is just bad and wrong. And, and it's not, it's a normal, natural, healthy process in the body. It's the way that our body gets access to glucose. It's just a way to push the glucose into the cell. And like you said, in a normal, natural body, like there's no problems with that. It's Mm -hmm. when, you know, we get uh, resistance to insulin or when we mm-hmm. have like not insulin, not being produced that we start to get the problems with it. And so understanding that regulation of blood sugar is really helpful in helping women. I, I love the analogy of the rolling Hills versus the, the roller, roller coaster. coaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes a whole lot of sense as to, mm-hmm. um, it's not that the ups and downs are bad. That's a very normal natural, but when they become very extreme, mm-hmm. we have a, a different experience of, of what that feels like. I'm very excited. I got a, um, continuous blood glucose monitor just to try. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I got one and I, I was reading the directions. I was about to start it today. And I realized like, no, I should have read these last night and oh. have to be completely <laughs> fasted and, mm. uh, not drink anything, not work out like for like two hours, put it on so it can get calibrated. So I'm excited to put it on tomorrow and excited to see what I can learn. Cause I obviously have foundational knowledge, what sure. I think will happen, mm-hmm. but it'd be really fun to experiment with type of carb, sure. pairing carbs, um, carbs in liquid form versus solid form, like lots of really cool experiences, experiments that I can do. Yeah. That's always, that's really fun <laughs> doing mm-hmm. experiments on yourself and, and being yeah. able to take the, the foundational knowledge that you have and see it applied in real mm-hmm. life is, is really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to, you know, one of the things that I had mentioned before that there's, I feel like there's a huge wide divide on registered dietitians and you have ones that like hate macro counting. You have ones that like macro counting and you have ones that are like only intuitive eating. You have ones that are haze, you know, only, or what, you know, whatever it is. So I'm curious and I want to dive a little bit more into that. Like, why do you think that is, uh, you know, we kind of started talking about a little bit, but I want to dive a little bit more into it. Why do you think that is? And, and is that a good thing? Is that a good thing Mm -hmm. for the profession of dietetics? Um, Mm -hmm. and is that a good thing for clients of dietitians? 
Yeah, that's a really good uh, question. I personally think that having a specialty and owning a niche and being an expert in that niche helps clients. So it's okay if we start to specialize and we take our background, which was very general, and then start to really niche down and then attract the right client. And then it's going to be a seamless, helpful, awesome relationship. I don't really see that as a bad thing. What I do think is a a product of that is that we're all competing in the same space. Let's just say online, we live very much online. And so what the consumer or the client sees is battling. They think, they think that we're all fighting. (laughs) And the truth of the matter is as a dietitian that focuses on macro tracking, I am in my own lane and I don't really see what other people are doing. I don't, I also don't use inflammatory language that bashes what my, my fellow professionals are doing. So I would say that the mature professionals in the field are hanging out in their niche, serving their clients, and they're blind to what other people are doing. I would say, um, I don't really want to say it's like young dietitians or, um, you know, new to the field dietitians, but I do tend to think that with age and the longer that we are in this profession, you start to realize that you know, no, you know, nothing. And the longer that you are an expert, the more you realize, you know, nothing. And, um, there's always something left to be learned. And I, I also think that we are, um, we allow for more nuance, the older, the more mature, the more professional that we like, the more that we like hang out in this profession. So you see less bashing, you see less like cutting down of other dietitians or cutting down of other approaches, the older that you get and the longer that you're in the profession. I don't know if you see the same thing with nurses or other healthcare professions, but that's what I see. Um, I will say, um, I think as professional, we owe it to the masses to specialize, like I said, and ultimately different people are going to need different have different needs and respond to different approaches. So it's amazing for what, for what's amazing for one person is probably not going to yeah. be amazing for another. And so it's, it's good. It's, it's an okay thing that we specialize. And um, so while I specialize in macro tracking, that would not be the best fit for somebody that is really triggered by numbers, hates yeah. data, doesn't uh, really respond to that sort of thing. They uh, actually want to have a little less uh, involvement in their food. So that's fine. But another person actually might love meal plans and really thrive with somebody else taking that off their plate. So who am I to say that that dietitian who's serving that client is wrong? You know, we're all getting help. They're all getting help. And that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. And I think to your point, um, the older you get, the more you realize there's a lot of nuance, the more you realize there's a lot of ways to get to the end result. And like, it's not mm-hmm. just one way that is, is perfect for everybody. And, uh, there are a lot of different needs out there and different types of people and how awesome that we can have lots of different types of coaches and lots of different types of dietitians to be able to serve those different client needs. And I think you said the key is when you compare the dietitian or the coach or the provider with the type of client that they like their responds very well to that style or that, that tool that they are teaching and using. And when that happens, then they're able to take off. But this idea that we think that our way is the best for everybody in the whole world. I think, like you said, the older you get, the more you realize that's really, that's really silly to think. <laughs> Maybe it's mm-hmm. egotistical to think that your way mm-hmm. is like the best and only and right way for every yeah. single person in the world. 
Yeah, it's impossible. I'd say if you're a client or you are searching for a coach, um, you know that there's probably a better fit approach for you that suits your personality, your lifestyle, the way you view the world, the way that you interact with data or not. So if you find that you're watching coaches or professionals online, which is an awesome thing, actually, because you can quote, try try yeah. them on. Like I would say my Instagram is a great front door to my coaching practice. So if you like the way I talk online, if you respond to what I'm talking about, like you see yourself in my content, we're probably going to be a great fit together. Um, but you can do the same thing with other coaches. Like if you find a professional being very divisive, please take note of that and decide if that is a marketing tactic that you you feel good with. And if, if it's a marketing tactic to reach their ideal client, or if it's actually that that professional is pretty rigid in their practice. So I get, I guess I want to round out that thought by saying like, one of the best things that happened to me is the internet. Um, I'm so happy and thankful that I can reach clients online, but it also means that sometimes I need to take a stand on things, even when I truly know that there's more nuance. And I would say that probably happens 80% of the time I am talking in nuance or, but I'm also trying to attract that person to me. That's going to be the best fit for me because I'm running a business and you do the same thing. So um, sometimes what we say, uh, it, it should never feel rigid and divisive. It should feel, you should be able to distinguish whether or not it's a marketing tactic or if I actually really feel very divisive in my uh, coaching or things like that. Yeah. Honestly, that's one of the reasons that I started a podcast. Cause I was like, I want people to be able to try me on mm-hmm. <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> and if you like the podcast, you're going to love my coaching. And if you hate my podcast, you probably should not, I'm not the coach for you. And that's a really that's great okay. thing for both of us to understand. Mm-hmm. I know. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just, so I recently got on TikTok. Um, we're, we're, tra- we're testing it out and trying it out. I feel a little bit of like a fish out of water in there, but it was so funny. I was listening to, to a TikTok expert and she was talking about, um, especially in TikTok, she's like, stay out of the gray. She's like, if you're mm. someone who likes to have nuance and you like to like say, well, there's lots of different ways to do it. She's like, you're going to get eaten alive on, on TikTok. She's like, you have to be like black and white. And I'm like, that's so not me. Like I, exactly. am, <laughs> I like want to lean into the nuance. I want to be like, mm-hmm. it's different for everybody. And so when she was saying that, I was like, oh man, I don't know if TikTok's the right place for me is like, I feel like I can't have the nuance that I, that I want to have. But anyway, it was just, it's a, it, it is an interesting dynamic you bring up of that balance mm-hmm. between marketing and attracting your ideal client, as mm-hmm. well as recognizing that you aren't for everybody and that mm-hmm. you know, they're, yeah, you, you can't serve, nor do you want to serve every single type of person. Yeah. I think the people that are doing really well on TikTok, I would agree with you are the people that are super it's like black and white into their niche. Yeah. 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 I mean, and there are probably aspects of my coaching that I could probably go hard in, but that's boring to me. Like mm-hmm. I am a uh, business Same. owner that has a lot of passions. So yeah. it just, I'm, I'm okay with that medium. It's not being right for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been, a, it's been an interesting trial for sure for us. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I want to kind of pivot into and talk a little bit about is the term diet culture, because I feel like it is a buzzword. We talked a little bit beforehand, before we pushed record on just it's something that comes up for me in my coaching and, and online, I think a lot too, even more so, um, on the internet, on, on social media, this idea of diet culture. And I feel like maybe it's better now. Maybe I just don't listen to it as much as I used to, but I feel like for a very long time, there was a big push against macro counting. And it was like intuitive eating versus macro counting haze versus macro counting. Like we were in this mm-hmm. battle We <laughs> and were, diet, and diet culture was like this, this word that was thrown around as like a, a weapon against you know, macro counting. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious, and I would love to just kind of explore this a little bit with you and open up this 
probably what is a huge can of worms, but we'll keep it tight uh, of like, you know, first of all, I, I think it's important to define diet culture because I think people throw that term around and mean a lot of different things. So let's first define what we're talking about when we mm-hmm. uh, talk about diet culture and why, why was that such a thing? Why is that such a thing where um, it's thrown around as almost this weapon against mm-hmm. different industries? Yeah, I would say that my understanding of the term diet culture is that it's kind of a social expectation that tells us that we should eat and look typically lighter, thinner, smaller, uh, a certain way, and our uh, that we will be more accepted if our yeah. bodies look that way. And I think it's also that we might put aesthetic before physical, psychological, and general well-being. So you're really putting aesthetic or what your body looks like ahead of all these other things. It's more important than all these other things, which is obviously not something that we believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, my opinion, and I'm not an expert in this area. <laughs> I, I would call on my dietitian expert friends that are in this world of body image coaching. I would probably call on them for this, but um, we hear so much of this because the people that were harmed by diet culture are now all grown up and we're probably re-examining our own relationships with food. Sure. We're having kids and we might be examining the way that they talk about food, the way that they talk about their body. Um, maybe we're cross-referencing that with the way that we grow up. And my personal opinion is that millennials and Gen Xers, we're all on the internet now and we are in places of influence. We are higher in our careers now and we have a ton of conversation about it now. Like that's, that's in my my opinion, where this is coming from. And we have an awesome generation of Gen Z coming up and looking at us as examples and be like, yeah, we don't have to do it that way. And I'm Mm -hmm. so happy for them and proud of them for, for saying that stuff. But in my personal opinion, it's coming from the fact that we are all grown up and we are examining ourselves. We're going to therapy. We're unpacking this. (laughs) And we're like, Hey, that wasn't really that fun growing up in the nineties and two thousands in a very extremely fat phobic environment. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's, it's really good. Um, I think you're, you're hit kind of hit the nail on the head of like, as you get older, you start to re-examine those things that you just kind of assumed were just the way things are like thinner is better. Smaller is better. Like, you know, fat is bad. Like that was definitely the water that we were raised in the air that we breathed in the, in the nineties and two thousands. And as you get older, you start to look back and say, Oh, wait a minute. That was like, someone told that to me. (laughs) That wasn't, that isn't founded truth. That's just like, somebody told that to me and I just accepted it and, and went with it. And now I'm getting older and I'm realizing maybe that's not actually true. Maybe fat isn't actually terrible. Maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, you can't be fat in front of, yeah. Yeah. Or, or thinness in front of every other right. metric every, of health everything is, else yeah. in your life. Right. Yeah. At all mm-hmm. costs. It's like thinness at all costs mm-hmm. was definitely the message that was perpetuated a lot. I had an awesome client a few years back who told me that it was eye-opening, like like earth shattering to her when I shared my weight online. So I was like doing some sort of experiment or something. And she's like, I just didn't know that there were women that were heavier than me. Like she, in her mind, she was like wow. 150 pounds is the most that I can be. Cause that was wow. ingrained for her. And so yeah. chasing that number was so, so pivotal and like monumental for her whole life, her whole adult life. And so when I shared that I was 158, 165, I've been all over the place up there. She's like, it honestly was earth shattering to me. And I think that even, I I don't think that's an overt um, thing people think about all the time, but it's probably an undertone. It's probably an undertone to a lot of the people listening. And I'd say that like we were just talking about it's overtones in the nineties and undertones in in the nineties. We're looking at movies and commercials and our, Mm -hmm. our favorite characters on TV. They're 
dilemmas, like their humor was all very fat phobic. And so sure. that's just the media. Like if you're in sports and you've got teachers and you've got trainers and you've got people of influence in your own life that are speaking that whole same language, we just inherently grow up thinking that being in a bigger body is bad and chasing a smaller body is the only thing worth matter, like worth your time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I would say is like diet culture. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're moving away from that as the end all be all at all costs. Mm-hmm. And so I guess like sometimes people can wrap up macro tracking and macro counting into that. And I think both of us would agree that there's nuance here yeah. and you are allowed to want to change your body. And you can also do it from a place of love and respect and not hate, which yeah. is where I think the overtone of like diet culture like is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I'm so aligned with like so much of that you just said, uh, and especially this idea that I think the reality of diet culture and the way that we've been speaking about it is definitely true. And I think what happens is a lot of people then push, start to push back against this notion that thinner is better. And it sometimes then goes to the opposite extreme of like any type of trying to change uh, is coming from a pace of negativity about yourself or from a fat phobic, you know, desire or, or, or Mm -hmm. whatever. And I think, um, what you were saying and what I totally agree with is that there is a middle ground in between those two extremes of where desire to change, desire to manipulate, desire to create a different reality for yourself is not inherently bad. It's bad when it's done from a place of self-loathing or I'll be better when, or I will be worthy mm-hmm. when I am this size. When it's done from a place of curiosity, it's done from a place of desire to grow, from a desire to push yourself, from uh, let's see what I can do. Let's like, you know, challenge myself. Like when it comes from that place, it comes from a much healthier place than a, I, I'm not enough until I weigh 150 mm-hmm. pounds. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where the danger really starts to show up with, with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, the way you introduced this question, it made me think of like 2019, 2020, early 2020, which I feel like was the peak of the arguing. Okay. Between, so it's uh, not just me. I felt like there no. really was a war going on yeah. on the yeah. online. And I felt like I was never attacked, but I was like watching it all go down. And I feel like I hid a little bit, not necessarily hid, but I just was like, quieter about like, I don't know, I wasn't going to argue because I, again, believe in nuance. I believe that like intuitive eating, non-numbers driven, data-driven dietitians are doing an awesome job. And I appreciate what they're doing because the clients that work with them are not going to find success with me. And I kind of expected to see the same respect uh, backwards and and it wasn't (laughs) always happening. Um, But I will say, I I feel like it's calmed down. Um, But if you were caught up in that at that time, what did, what would you say like different, like how do you describe how you're different, what you do is different from diet culture? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that I've really pushed a lot and like realized again, as I've like matured and aged in my ability to coach and my ability to work with all, you know different people is really this idea of macro counting as a tool. And I think macro counting can get very diety in that it can be just like any other diet where it's like, this is the right way to do it. This is the wrong way to do it. And if you do it the wrong way, well, then you suck and you're a problem and you need to just do it better. Just, just, just do it. It's not hard. Yeah. Track (laughs) harder. Hit your, just track harder. Just hit your macros. Like, why are you having such a problem? So I think that it, and I think that comes from an underpinning of women 
going through the nineties and two thousands and having gone through lots of different diets. And so they bring that expectation of like, Oh, this is what, this is what it's like to go into a diet. And so they come into macro counting and they're like, well, this is how I've done in the past. Someone just told me what to do. And I just did it. And, mm-hmm. and so they kind of take macro counting and they turn it into a diet. And so I've mm-hmm. really tried to push back against that. And in my coaching really recognize like removing the rigidity out of macro tracking, removing mm-hmm. the, like, you have to hit your numbers. And if you don't do it, then you're a bad person and you're never going to get results. And instead approach it with curiosity and realize that it's a tool and realize that that tool should work for you, not mm-hmm. you working for the tool. And yeah. that's really how I try to help like balance that idea of, um, rigidity and diets and the restriction that comes from the feeling of restriction that comes from diets. And instead recognizing, Hey, we can use this for in different ways in different times of our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each client can use the, the, the tool a little differently. Like I have mm-hmm. macro account or clients counting macros in, in a variety of different ways because they found how to take that tool and customize it to, you know, what they need in, in their yeah. in life. I completely agree. I think a lot of times people find macro tracking and macro counting from the lens of a diet. This will help me finally lose weight. And so we're capturing those people. We're happy to have them, but then we're also like trying to shift them a little bit. Look at all the (laughs) things that you can do here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Look at all those ways that you can use it and look how you don't have to use it forever. Kind of Exactly. I I always like cringe a little bit when I'm doing like SEO searches or like Google searches to try and like get content ideas. And when I ever like see, does the macro diet work? Does the, it had how to do the macro diet. And I'm like, Oh, I just like cringe every time. Cause I'm like, Mm -hmm. you're right. We are attracting those people who are like looking for another diet and then trying to coax them out of it. And and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of move a little bit more into that, that nuance. Yeah. Um, speaking about clients and, uh, getting client success, you and I have both, we've coached a lot of clients and, Mm -hmm. um, started likely to notice patterns of what helps people to be successful. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious for you, what are some of the top five, uh, attributes that you can kind of peg in someone's like, okay, if if you have this attribute, you're like, you're likelihood of success is higher than someone who's coming in without that attribute or who doesn't have that attribute. Well, you did just touch on it. So I would say I will echo Great, this. Into it. <laughs> Lead with curiosity instead of leading with the outcome that you want to achieve. Like it's great to have goals, but I'd love it yeah. if you were able to say, um, I am curious about what I can accomplish if I do these things. I'm open to the outcome that it will bring me, even if it yeah, doesn't look exactly so the way that I've imagined. So, yeah, so leading with curiosity is a trait that I look for in my coaching applications for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Number two, I would say that if you are willing to be a beginner, we're probably going to get along um, because there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen. And sometimes that comes with like forgiving yourself for what you did before. So it, it's okay if you come to us uh, having had a long history of dieting or a long history of believing a certain thing about yourself or a certain thing about nutrition. But if you're willing to trust an expert, also be willing to just be a beginner and be bad at it because. Uh, when you apply new skills, it's going to feel really clunky in the beginning. But if you're, again, trying to apply this perfection, and if I just follow these rules, I will be better. Um, that doesn't really leave a lot of room for growth or grace for yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's tough. That's tough to coach around. Sure. I'd say another uh, pattern um, of a person who's, or a type of person who's like most successful is probably somebody who's willing to expand their time frame or let go of time frames mm, altogether. Yeah. Because when you have like an urgency around 
like weight loss or fat loss or something like that, it tends to not go as well as you want it to. You're mm -hmm. always going to be disappointed. Like I yeah. can understand time dependent goals for the sake of like, um, I don't know, just like, uh, I want to accomplish this in this amount of time, or this is all I have to dedicate. This is when I, my, my motivation is highest. My discipline is going to be great. Like having finite timeframes is is okay. But if you're willing to expand it a little bit farther or even let go of it, you might accomplish even more than you realized. Yeah, so yeah, I guess true. it doesn't really, it's nuanced, but I would say if you're able <laughs> to let go of like, I want to lose 20 pounds by this date, or I want to be this size by this date, it tends to go a lot better and the client is more successful. Yeah. Agreed. That's super good. Number four, I would say is focusing on moving forward. So not going back, um, meaning uh, not like having respect for an old version of yourself, but realize that you're not going back there. You are only moving forward and it's terrible to compare yourself to old versions of yourself or places that you used to be in your fitness or places you used to be with your leanness. And I know you particularly are really great about talking about this because you've had aesthetic goals, you've had fitness goals, you've had, you know, competition-based goals, and you're only going forward and humans are meant to evolve. Yeah. Uh, if we're always constantly chasing an older version of ourselves, it's usually not. And I find this with the, the like pre-pregnancy weight or the pre-pregnancy body or the body that we had in college. Like that is not realistic usually to look at that as your metric of success. Instead, I want you to form up. What if you could be so much different and better if we were just looking forward? So the more successful client is somebody that has a forward vision, forgives or blesses that person in the past and moves forward. That's good. Last one I would say is if they are willing to let go of the belief that the smallest version of themselves is the healthiest version of themselves, because it might not be. And sometimes they do go together. Sometimes they don't. And so uh, a lot of times clients will come in with a vision again of themselves in the past or a vision of their friend who's the same weight and same height. And they want to be like them or an influencer or something like that. Um, but to get to be the smallest version of themselves, they are sacrificing their mental health. They're sacrificing maybe even physical health in order to get there. And I'm not in the business of leaving you worse than when we started. I want you to be better on many, many fronts than when we started. So I would say that if you're willing to break up with that, if you're willing to just let go that the smallest version of yourself is the healthiest version of yourself, then we'll probably be a good fit. And you're probably going to be more successful in coaching. Yeah, those are, those are really good. Um, and I especially love this conversation of, of comparison against yourself. I think that is the sneakiest way we get that like, oh yeah, I'm not supposed to compare against my sister. I'm not supposed to compare against my friend and I'm not supposed to do these comparisons, even though we do them, but we know mm -hmm. on some level that it's not really good to do them and it's not really healthy or helpful to do them. But mm -hmm. I feel like the insidious one is the comparison against ourselves because we feel like on some level, that's a, that's a, accurate comparison. It's a, it's an apples to apples comparison. It's me versus me. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. how does that, how does that not work? Um, so it's, it's insidious because we don't question it. And yet it's it, like you said, it is still an apples to oranges comparison because it's you in a different time frame. It's you in a different context. It's you in a different age. It's you in a different, like there are a whole lot of differences that make it an apples to oranges comparison, not an apples to apples comparison. Mm -hmm. And, and it, that, trips up a lot of women of thinking like, well, my body used to be there. So on some level I should be able to get back there, or that was the best place for it. Or, you know, that that's the place that that's the pinnacle of everything. And then it always becomes trying to get back to like what we felt like was the pinnacle and spending your life just chasing that, that one moment in time when we felt like, Oh, that was, had everything I wanted. Mm -hmm. um, 
that gets really dangerous. I tend to be, I tend to help clients get out of that with a, one of the things I mentioned, I, I touched on process-based goals versus outcome-based goals. So instead of saying to yourself, um, I'm going to accomplish X in this amount of time, or I'm going to get to this body that I had before in this time, I ask them to set, to reframe that as a process-based goals. Cause you have literally no control as much as we want to say we do, like we have literally no control of whether or not you're going to land at that body weight or land at that sure. body size or shape or whatever. There's so many other factors going on that we, that are out of our control, but what you do have control over is your habits. And we know that your most common habits or the typical habits that you engage in all the time are probably going to lead you to have the body or have the fitness uh, shape and size that, that you're looking for. So if we say, um, I'm going to, I'm going to set out and like, try to do this one thing three times a week for 12 weeks and see what it brings to my life. I'm open to the outcome. It's probably going to lead me in that general direction of where I want to go, but that is much more gentle and it leads with curiosity versus like rigidity. Um, and usually that, it, that helps people be a little bit more uh, successful um, with their pursuit of those goals. Yeah. Back to that curiosity that you said like, mm-hmm. makes people successful. Like, let's see what happens. Let, let's do mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z for 12 weeks and let's see what happens. And when you can let go of like, no, this has to happen, or this is the mm-hmm. only outcome that I will accept, or this is, this mm-hmm. is it's this or bust that it, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it counteracts everything that you're trying to accomplish and makes yeah. it stressful and makes it mean things about you. And then you feel mm-hmm. bad about yourself and it just leads to all sorts of unhealthy things. Totally. Uh, okay. Last topic I want to hit on before we wrap up. And that is the transition between, because you said this earlier, you don't necessarily want your, your clients counting macros forever. And I'm the same way. It's like, I view it as a tool and it's a tool you that's really valuable to understand and learn about and use, but it's not something that you necessarily have to do for the rest of your life. And so mm-hmm. that transition from macro counting to more intuitively eating, or I like to call it informed eating. Cause I think we can use the information we gained and, and have that still continue to guide us. But that transition away from tracking can feel very scary for people, especially for women who finally found success aesthetically with that tool. And then it feels like letting go of that tool is going to make them lose all the, the, their, their success. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. how have you found to help clients make that transition a little bit easier? uh, Mm -hmm. phases? Well, luckily there's tons of things that we can do and that's what coaching is. (laughs) We find the thing that works best for you. We're not going to say this is the blueprint. Um, but by and large, the thing that I try to coach from the very, very beginning is knowing that you're probably going to let this go. So if you lead with that, yeah, mindset, then you uh, are paying attention differently to how you feel, maybe how that food looks like on your plate when you serve it up and you are tracking, um, you know, if you are like the timing of your meals or how you feel when you are well-fed or underfed, paying attention and not just blindly trying to hit your numbers is one really great way to set yourself up for the months from now, or maybe years from now when you decide that you don't want to track anymore. So mm-hmm. take lessons learned from tracking and keep it up even when you're not tracking. So that might be probably leading with protein in your meals, eating balanced meals, um, being picky about those high macro foods and maybe less picky about those low macro foods, those high volume foods, things like that. So if you're not paying attention when you're tracking, it's gonna be really tough to gather that data on yourself and know what it feels like um, to be well-fed or to be underfed and know where to go and how to fix it when you aren't tracking. So another thing I do is I help uh, people decide if there is a different season that's maybe more appropriate to track. 
than others. So maybe they focus on it when they do have the bandwidth to focus and less they're less likely to track when they don't have the bandwidth. And that's totally okay. You cannot have all the balls in the air at the same time. And we do know that tracking does take up a bit of bandwidth. There's shopping differences, there's meal prep and meal planning differences, there's getting in your app, um, there's maybe a little bit of math sometimes, uh, and that might not be appropriate for every single season of your life. So I might help people decide that this is a right season or a wrong season to be tracking, and that's totally okay. Um, another thing that people might do is track food when you're away from home and not when you're at home. So that just reinforces that nutrition education that you get from interacting with your app and tracking your food. I, I, I always say this, like every time you track, it's a basic education opportunity. Yeah. You are learning what macros are in what food you're looking what, at, what service sizes look like on your plate, which is all data for the future, only if you're paying attention. So yeah, I mean, it's um, such a good point. Cause I think you're yeah. right. I think a lot of people just track and they just kind of do it mindlessly. Like, oh, I have to track mm-hmm. this thing. But what you're saying is really important. You're saying that every opportunity when you are tracking is an opportunity for education. If you take the opportunity, <laughs> like you yeah. actually yeah. have to be like, oh, I like, let me learn what is in this food. Not let me just track it and like, not even look at the numbers. It's like, Mm-hmm. Let me take this opportunity to, to do a little bit of education. And I think what you said about having that eye towards, I don't want to do this forever. And so I need to learn X, Y, and Z in the meantime, mm-hmm. yeah, gets you to get to that point where you feel like you can let go of it. But if you haven't mm-hmm. taken an opportunity or advantage of that opportunity to learn in between those two extremes, it can feel like, well, how could I let this go? It literally does everything for me. It, it does makes all right. the decisions for me because you've yeah, you yourself effectively turned yeah, you've you've effectively turned it into another diet, a plan, exactly. a, a meal plan, a yes. program that you have rigid rules, which is what you yep. were trying to get away from in the first place. So exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Last thing I'll say, and then I'll pose it to you because you probably have more to add to this list, but I would say that even just tracking protein, which is typically one of the harder macros to meet and maybe the most effective for what our clients want. Uh, so if you just track protein and aim to get close to your target, that can be really freeing to just let go of the fat and carbs. So eat to your, you know, wants, make PFC balanced meals, like, you know, build a plate how you want. But if you're just kind of keeping an eye on protein, that can be one step in the direction of maybe moving more intuitively, uh, intuitively eating your needs or more informed eating, as you said, uh, with macro tracking. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that I, I work a lot with clients on is baby stepping that process. And so exactly what you just said is like, if you've been tracking carbs, fat, and protein, like releasing the hand grip a little bit, releasing that, that grasp on that, mm-hmm. that thing that makes you feel comfortable and confident, releasing it a little bit and only focusing on tracking protein can be one mm-hmm. baby step towards letting go of that, you know, feeling of control, um, in the way that you felt it before and learning to rely more on trust of yourself, um, Mm -hmm. is one way to do it, you know, and then you can baby step that other ways. Maybe you track your breakfast and your lunch and you don't track your dinner. And so you go into that dinner knowing, Hey, I have X amount of carbs, fat and protein left, but I'm not going to track it. I'm just going to like kind of eyeball it and figure that out. Right. So it's like slowly making those decisions to let go piece by piece can allow you to kind of baby step away from, that, that life vest that you felt like you held yeah. on, you had to hold on to for, for so long. Um, but I, I always teach clients. I said the, the goal is not control. The goal is trust and the bridge between where you are. Usually when you start coaching with me and where you end up is 
is sometimes control. It's like we go from feeling out of control. Most clients come to be feeling very out of control. We get them to a place where they feel more in control and they have this tool and they're following it and they're like feeling really good, but that's not the end destination. The end destination is trust. And for trust to happen, there has to be a, a letting go of feeling like your control is reliant on external sources and more reliant on internal. Ooh, and that's, that's where really good. like integrating mm-hmm. that knowledge that you learn. That's why this idea of like intuitive eating, I feel like I like to call it informed eating. I feel like it's like in the middle between like intuitive eating and macro counting. It's like, I'm not throwing away what I learned during macro counting. I'm using that education, but I'm also integrating my body and body cues to be able to make that informed decision. I'm using both my body and my brain together Mm -hmm. to make decisions about what I'm eating. I would say that my clients, and you probably experience this too, when they go on vacation and they let go of tracking, because I always say, there's a difference between eating like you disrespect yourself and diligently hitting your macros. There's a lot of choices that you have. Yeah, there's a lot of gray there. in between. There's there's lots of nuance. <laughs> yeah. And you are allowed to fall anywhere in there. But yes. unfortunately, a lot of the times when people come to us, they're only oscillating between those two the things. Two so yeah. while they're working with me, uh, they, you can't hide from vacations. You can't hide from being right. sick. You can't hide from, from periods of time where you're less motivated. So we get to practice or try right. on your personal gray area. So I kind of talk it and it's not yeah. my gray area. It's your gray area. So we get to decide what habits and behaviors belong there. And so a lot of times when they come back from vac- vacation, they're like, I knew I could feel when I was underfed. And I knew that, you know, when I went to bed, eating this type of meal, I was going to wake up feeling this way. And so it was a great, it's a great cushion, uh, a little bit of a, like a learning experience to be like, yeah, you can start to trust yourself. You are like your default yeah. behaviors are changing and yes. um, yeah, we can use that for the future, that information for the future. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Really, really good. Well, Emily, this has been amazing. Uh, if people are wanting to connect with you, wanting to learn more about you and, and your programs, where can they find you? We can find me online at emilyfieldrd.com. And like I said, I feel like Instagram is the front door to my business. So if you would like to try on my approach and um, yeah, and my philosophy, you could come over to emilyfieldrd on Instagram and see me there because we do a lot of education there. Yeah. She has a fantastic page. Highly, highly recommend a a follow there. Uh, Emily, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yes. Thank you so much, Amber. I hope you have a great day. I hope that you learned a lot from that episode. Emily is fantastic. And I really appreciate her insights about the things that we talked about on the podcast episode today. And I hope that you're coming away with some actionable things that you can start to put into practice to be able to move you a little bit further forward on your own fitness goals and your own journey. That wraps up this episode of Biceps After Babies Radio. I'm Amber. Now go out and be strong because remember my friend, you can do anything. Hey friend, have you heard the news? We have a Biceps After Babies Radio insider list. If you love Biceps After Babies Radio, you don't want to miss a thing. Head to bicepsafterbabies.com forward slash insider to join the group. You'll be the first to know all things about the podcast, see some behind the scenes and get special messages from yours truly. We want to make this a special community for those who are fans of the podcast. And last, did this episode particularly resonate with you? If so, will you please share it? Either send the link to someone who would find it valuable or take a screenshot and post it to your social media and tell your family and friends why they should listen. Make sure you tag me at Biceps After Babies so I can hear your feedback and give you a little love. And you know, if you aren't already following me on Instagram or Facebook, that's the perfect time to hit that follow button. Thank you for being here and listening to Biceps After Babies Radio.